So hey everyone, welcome to Gray Matter. Excited today to have Marcos Salama, CEO of Inventa. Marcos is an old friend and someone who we've been fortunate to work with at Greylock, you know, for the better part of a year. As context, Inventa is the leading B2B marketplace in Brazil, focused on connecting small retailers with suppliers in Latin America more broadly. Marcos previously was an exec at Rappi, and prior to that was at McKinsey. Marcos and I first got to know each other when we were students about a decade ago, so I've had a long journey, and it's been a real honor to kind of watch you grow over the years, Marcos. So thanks for having this conversation. Uh, welcome. Super happy to be here, Mike. Thanks for inviting me. Yeah. So, you know, just jumping into it, I think, you know, we want to spend a lot of time today on Inventa, but kind of more broadly on kind of B2B marketplaces, as well as kind of the, the nuances of building, you know, a high growth startup in LATAM. I think to get started, kind of set the foundation here, tell us a bit about the founding story behind Inventa and maybe the broader vision around the company. For sure. So I come from a family of entrepreneurs and I always had a dream to start a business and, and to have an impact. And that was what kind of fueled that idea of like finding something to solve, finding an idea. You know, I lived in my past, before we met, I actually lived in Europe. I lived in Asia and then we, we met in San Francisco while, while at Stanford. But I had an unique view of like different places around the world, Europe, Asia and San Francisco. And when I traveled to, to LATAM, I saw that a lot of things that were supposed to happen in the, in the US were not happening in LATAM. About Inventa now, I think we set up Fernando and I not even two years ago. And we had the dream of like helping millions of entrepreneurs thrive. And, um, you know, when, when we went to talk to funds and raise some money, we, we had a, a position that was very special. We were told we were the seventh company in Brazil trying to do this. And now looking back, this was a blessing in disguise. Because, because of that, we had the super scrappy, super fast, and we built a culture around fast execution, built a culture around getting out to the client first, and that was what bred that fire of, of Invent at the beginning. Maybe if you could go back to your time at Rappi, and now, by now it's pretty widely regarded as like, you know, a great success story in, in LATAM. What were some of the insights there, or even like operating disciplines that you wanted to bring over to Inventa? And I guess essentially, like, what did you learn and want to take from that? I joined Rappi, you know, 2017. Still was a small startup in Colombia. I think Mexico had just opened. And the culture there and, and, and the values on executing on, on putting the customer first on, on really speed of execution was what really mattered as a company was amazing and contagious. Every senior leader there understood perfectly what they needed to do and why it mattered. We weren't working for, to sell more. We were working because we thought, you know, hundreds of thousands or even millions of people could have a second income. And that was a, a clear sense of mission. And you put that together with an obsessive execution or pace of implementation, uh, then you get something wonderful. That's something I tried to bring over to Inventa because this speed to execution allows you to be wrong really fast and correct. And that's something we, we learned at Rappi. We did a lot of experiments, we did a lot of mistakes, but because we were always pushing to be faster, pushing, pushing to, to try things out, we also did a lot of things right because we were able to test a lot. And you know, when I think about Inventa, one of the best things I've you know, I bring over from my time at Rappi is that obsessive and relentless speed of execution, putting the customer first and, and trying to like iterate on what's best for them. 
So going back to one of the points you made on LATAM and kind of you realizing that the opportunity here was incredibly unique. And as you've kind of hinted on, there's also challenges of building a company out there. I guess when you were weighing those, like what gave you that kind of conviction on LATAM and maybe more specifically on this opportunity? Like what were some of the, like when did you know that this was the concept you wanted to build down there? I spent uh, my time at Rappi working with retailers. I used to lead groceries there and from an early on, a big part of my role was talking, negotiating, getting terms out of mid, small, and large retailers. And I understood that typically they got, you know, various problems. One is assortment. One is access to working capital. The other one is logistics. So, like, my experience in Rappi helped me understand better what problems retailer stores had. The more specialized, the harder it was to find products. You know, the more boutique or small, the harder it was to negotiate products. So I think I had a unique opportunity or a unique spot to understand a problem that wasn't that obvious, at least for me back then. And when you put that together and you think about the economy, how is it structured in, in LATAM, B2C or small store, small retail represent a much, much bigger portion of the economy that would do in you know, developing countries in the US or, or Europe. So that sets an opportunity, right? You know, millions of small entrepreneurs, no clear access to discoverability of parts, no clear access to great prices, hard to define how to optimize logistics. And that creates a big problem. And, and we saw it as a huge opportunity. Maybe you could talk a little bit more about the status quo of like how, you know, for, for listeners who are not familiar with how, how local retailers there are actually discovering and buying products, like how does it actually work today? Yeah, great point. If you're a small store and you typically buy, you know, cosmetics, home decor, you know, small jewelry, clothing, you have a couple options. One, you can go to an antique, I would say, fair, where you see what's happening, and you do it one, two, three times a, a year, right? And you see kind of the trends. Second is you rely on distributors or smaller distributors who buy from bigger distributors. And what they, what they typically, what they propose is their portfolio of products, and that's the options you have to buy. And finally, you can talk to sales reps. And sales reps are typically going to try to sell you the highest margin product. So if you're a small store, it's really hard for you to try something new. There's no data. Uh, there's very, very little possibility of discovery because it's a risk on you. And furthermore, because the suppliers are not willing to risk a new relationship on credit, and many, many of the retailers don't have a credit card, it's risky. right? So think about it this way. You're a small store. You have a commercial relationship with a distributor or sales rep. You don't have any data on what products are selling somewhere else. And if you want to try something, you need to pay up front. And you're not sure what prices are you paying. So we uh, put that together. It's a complex problem to solve. And it's a complex problem, a complex operation to be in as a small, uh, you know, entrepreneur. And so you've looked at models that have worked in like other geographies. I mean, I think like FAIR obviously is, is one example of one that's doing well in the in the US and in parts of Europe where it feels like to some extent kind of the the potential margin structure of these businesses and like the the financing and credit options kind of proven out. And that's that's kind of a canonical example of what people go to is like a leading B2B market leading wholesale marketplace. LATAM is different and you kind of hinted at a couple of these reasons. Yeah, hundred percent. When you think about LATAM you have to think it this way. It's a more complex setup, okay, in many ways. You know, I think about credit. You know, most retailers in Latin don't have a credit card, particularly in Brazil. Think about logistics. You know, Brazil is a huge country, and you don't have a single player that can cover the whole country. You know, it's dozens of, 
of transportation and logistics companies that have specialized in different routes or different sections or even different smaller geographies. So the last one is many of the suppliers or the retailers today are managing their business with quote unquote pen and paper, right? So they're not as used to buying or, or, or selling digitally. And you put that together, you need to solve more problems. So um, I mean, I, you mentioned FAIR, I think it's an amazing business they built in Europe and uh, in the US and Europe. Uh, I think Anchor Store in Europe is also doing really well. And there's a couple in, in Asia. But LATAM, I think it's much more similar to what would be Asia, that would be the US, because of the infrastructure flaws that the economy has. So as such, you know, when we think about building a solution for LATAM, we need to build more things. You know? We need to build you know, a, a credit, a model credit engine that helps us serve our customers. Right? We would have loved to work with you know, any buy now, pay later for, for LATAM, but at the time, we didn't have anybody who's, who's suited for this. We had to build commercial relationships with you know, dozens of logistics companies. Okay? And we had to work you know, with small brands that were not digitized to help them start selling online. So I guess the problems are more basic, but the opportunity is bigger because proportionally, this part of the economy represents a much, much larger percentage than what would be you know, in the US or Europe. You look at kind of the assortment on products like Avento right now, where maybe you're dealing with a much higher volume of lower margin products. How do you actually work around that? How do you make the business kind of like work um, with a dynamic like that? So discoverability is the key problem we're trying to solve. Um, and, you know, when retailers buy different products every time or discover new products with you every time, then the value you generate as a marketplace is incremental. And that's the key. Even though, you know, we might not sell expensive candles, we might be selling, you know, cheaper cosmetics because it's like either boutique or specialized or regionalized. When we open that up to all of Brazil or to all of LATAM, then we create an incremental sale. And this is all about how we think our marketplace scales and why, why we think the opportunity is unique. Because breaching those connections between smaller suppliers and, you know, smaller retailers adds a, adds a tremendous amount of value to the system. We are, I would say, greasing those transactions with credit, with better operations, with better customer service, right? For us, for small retailers, customer service is key, uh, and we believe it's part of our you know, nature to be able to help um, our retailers in whatever problems they have today. Well, let's shift gears a little bit and talk about growth and the story of how things have grown so quickly there. I think one of the things that makes marketplaces like really challenging is the, you know, typical kind of chicken egg problem and getting one of these things off the ground and then going and building kind of initial liquidity, either within a category or kind of across multiple categories. Yeah. So in the early days of Inventa, we closed our series seed with like, um, you know, great local funds. And, and, and as I told you before, we, we were late and uh, we were the seventh company out of seven trying to build this. So we understood that speed was essential. What we used was like, you know, off the shelf, I guess, platforms to launch really, really fast. And in terms of supply and demand, because of, you know, my experience or team's experience in, you know, in actually building sales forces, we were able to like, you know, bring on board a very, very strong team really quickly. And we focused on supply. We understood that, you know, there's a chicken egg problem, but like initially we were supply constrained. So, you know, we, we built a team really fast, people who had, worked with in the past at Rappi, um, you know, in the commercial side. And we were really aggressive at closing contracts with, you know, I guess dozens or hundreds of suppliers in the first month or two. And because we, we used a third-party platform, we're kind of ready to sell in three weeks. 
And that gives us a huge advantage because the moment we started selling, we started understanding, you know, what pain points our customers had versus what we thought they had. And, and to your question, like that gives us a lot of speed. We were iterating while selling in the first couple of months, but the hypothesis we had about, you know, discoverability, you know, about trying new brands about credit were correct. Things we weren't right about, you know, Brazil doesn't buy that many candles. It's not a country which is particularly cold. And, you know, there are other categories which are more relevant, I would say. Yeah. Well, the, the focus on supply is an interesting one. I, I think, like, let's spend a little bit more time on that, because I think one of the dynamics that makes some of these businesses very powerful from a growth standpoint, or sorry, I should say efficient, is that, you know, supply, onboarding supply can be an avenue to kind of onboard all of their demand nodes, uh, given that, you know, it's just more efficient to be selling through through a digital kind of channel like this versus sending out you know, sales reps. Uh, there's also incentives you could do there, which I know Inventa has implemented. Was it obvious early on that you wanted to focus on supply here? So initially we started experimenting with like paid media and CEO to grow. And like that wasn't as effective as we thought it would be. And particularly it wasn't bringing in quality retailers, right? Retailers who want to stay here in the platform for long term. The rationale behind that we understood is that typically if you give credit online to people who are looking for credit online, you're not going to bet get the best, the best retailers. But in the next couple of months, we discovered, um, you know, a way to grow via suppliers. So that was why our growth was, was strong and, and, and very powerful, because what we typically see is a, a kind of referral loop where we give incentive to suppliers to bring in their retailers to the platform. And this is very powerful because we bring those retailers to the platform. We understand what those retailers are buying, and we can also recommend similar brands to those retailers. So bringing in supply, you know, brings in demand. Um, because they bring in their retailers. We understand what kind of product they're looking for. We close those brands and we bring more, more retailers. So supply-driven acquisition was a way for us to acquire at a low CAC, a high quantity and high quality of, of, of retailers. So I think we talked about acquisition. Obviously, there's other kind of downstream behaviors you will want to see to kind of make sure your marketplace has a healthy kind of dynamic. I mean, we talked a little bit about liquidity earlier, but I think overall, like, how do you assess health of growth? A couple of things we're looking for. For example, in the retailer perspective, the number of brands that a retailer buys, discovers, it's really important for us because it shows, you know, that the marketplace is bringing incrementality to the system and that we're creating new nodes, as you mentioned before, new nodes of operation and where, you know, the, the retailer is, is discovering brands and typically those brands have a high margin. It's a brand that they, they sell pretty well and they, they keep on discovering more. On the other perspective is, uh, on the re- on the supplier perspective, you know how many new connections do we make? You know, every brand that comes into a platform, what percentage of those products or those brands are selling in the next ninety days? So, if we think about increasing share of wallet for the retailer, and we think about bringing in quality suppliers to the platform, that's how we think about kind of growth quality. Inventa has depth in certain categories, but is definitely cross category. Like, how do you think about that tension? So we initially defined two or three categories to start with. It was home decor, cosmetics, and jewelry. We saw that cosmetics was you know, pulling off a lot faster than the others. So we kind of tried to narrow it down uh, to a persona retailer. So we think about you know, within the cosmetics categories, what personas of retailer can, you know, can we better serve? We identified a type of retailer, and we made sure that we, were, we had the, you know, 100 or 300 or 500 brands those type of retailers served. The beauty is that every time we ask a retailer what other brands would you want to pay with you know, these payment terms or these logistics operations or customer service, we got referred to new brands. So that gave us a pipeline of new brands 
And once we had enough critical mass, we were able to launch, I would say, subcategories seamlessly and that would serve our existing base. Uh, so we weren't really changing bases because there's some overlap between subcategories in, you know, home decor, cosmetics, healthy food and things like that. So we believe, you know, it's going deep into categories where we can add more value, but also believe that, you know, the power of those signals that retailers give us to define which category should be next, which are very, very indicative of how do we should be scaling. We've had a number of podcasts over the years on this topic. And now where we are sitting kind of, you know, end of 2022, it's become more obvious that these models can can work in a very big way. And I think some of it is due to enablement from, you know, new fintech revenue streams, as we've discussed, and also just kind of, you know, maybe generational change in terms of buyers just expecting more digitally native like solution. But where you're sitting in, you know, Brazil in 2022, like, you know, what's your point of view on broader B2B marketplaces outside of Inventa? Kind of what what categories do and don't they make sense for? Kind of how might a new entrepreneur who's thinking about building in this space think about approaching it? Yeah, I think, you know, when you think about trade in terms of B2B, you know, US is going to be, you know, 5 to 10x more in terms of percentage than what, what happens in, in, in Brazil. So 1 to 2% of, of trade in B2B happens online, um, somewhere around, you know, I guess it's 10 to 12% happens in the US. So that simply tells us that this is going to happen and it's here to stay. So there are going to be, you know, B2B marketplaces in, in Latin America uh, that really help small entrepreneurs or small retailers, and small stores, you know, discover, buy and operate. The question is, you know, where do we focus on? We believe that the categories that work for us are the ones that have more discoverability, the ones that have, you know, smaller brands, that they have different kind of transactions every time and that, you know, the customer is looking for different products, and so the retailer has to follow suit. We believe those are the where the opportunities of B2B marketplaces will be created, and, and that's why we, we, we stand there. Got it. And your market is uniquely fragmented, and you mentioned the discoverability point. And I guess, you know, <laughs> uh, you naturally as a founder, you're probably not spending too many time think too much time thinking about like other verticals. But I guess maybe maybe if we have um, a broader set of insights on one of the things that I think uh, Inventa has uh, has done very well is kind of, you know, establishing data science very early as a key like strategic asset, investing in this function as a real like core pillar of the company and the model. I guess like, well, there's a broader question on how does that apply to other B2B marketplaces? And is that kind of broad general advice you would give? On the data perspective, even though from the start, we knew data was going to be key. We need for various reasons. One, we wanted to solve the discoverability problem. And second, you know, we knew we had to be build a core solution around credit. So even though we launched off with, I would say, pre-made, you know, uh, platform solutions, we always defined an internalized data infrastructure and, 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 and we're really thoughtful and, and worked very hard around that. Um, to the point that very early on, we, we hired, um, you know, senior data scientists from the U.S. Uh, Daniel joined the team, you know, a couple of months ago and, and has led a, a large data science team make sure that we're thinking about data the right way, we're thinking about our infrastructure in the right way. And that I think that over time creates a, a significant competitive advantage because we are digitizing offline transactions. That's data that doesn't exist. That's not public data, it's private data. And that allows us to be, give better recommendations, allows us to you know give credit where other people wouldn't be able to. So we think that you know, data's core capability of the company, uh, we've invested in talent both in, in Brazil and, and abroad and, and you know, bringing in world-class quality talent there 
has always been a priority for us. Yeah, essentially, like, you know, it feels that the dynamic you just described, which is a lot of these um, verticals uh, are just operating in a very offline way where a lot of this data has not yet been brought online. And so I guess the question for other kind of founders looking to build in B2B marketplaces or just kind of with curiosity around B2B commerce, how should they think about the criticality of, of data science versus other functions? Your clients have pretty much no data if you're building a B2B marketplace. They have either a notebook or a digitized notebook, an Excel, a worksheet, and that's what they use to run their business. If you can build something that's much better than that, which you probably can, you can fix a huge pain point of what they should be buying, when they should be buying, how they should be selling, how much should they be selling. So I think for founders who are looking to build B2B marketplaces, making sure you can gather that information, gather that data, making sure you can understand it and making sure you can present it in an actionable and reasonable way to your you know, suppliers or, or retailers will add a, a tremendous amount of value because there's no way for them to access it now. You know, you're going to be probably the only one who has that kind of access. So uh, I think it's powerful for you to think of data from the beginning. Yeah. Going back to the talent point, Marcos, I mean, you've been able to build quite a strong team on Inventa across different geos, and I think uh, have been very deliberate on the type of culture and operating rigor that you want to build. What lessons might you have for founders that are looking to build teams in LATAM that are working specifically on like technology, software, marketplace businesses that are thinking of whether they need to base the company entirely down there or across geos? For us, remote has been a blessing. Because of that, we've been able to hire talent we couldn't get it otherwise. Uh, we think about a multicultural, multilingual company where, you know, hyper growth execution is kind of the name of the game. We speak in English and, you know, we want to hire talent from across the world who has the ambition, uh, the willingness, and I guess the, uh, the intent of, of, of building a business that matters. What we've seen is that we can get great local talent, you know, mid-level, junior level, and we've gone to the U.S. or Europe to, to, to hire senior talent because not only culture, but also expertise mattered here. So we're building a team where uh, we have a very, very strong local talent and we're cherry picking a couple of you know, great executives from across the world to lead functions that where they have to have expertise, where they want to have an impact and, and not necessarily, you know, live in Sao Paulo full time. Right. Yeah. When you think about having this rapid execution and kind of just like quick experimentation and kind of, you know, essentially just like really high operating rigor at Inventa, in my experience, that can be tougher when the team is based kind of across different time zones. You know, how do you work around that point specifically? Because, you know, I have this notion of early stage kind of scrappy, you know, growth oriented product teams that are just like experimenting uh, on a pretty rapid cadence. Like I imagine that's harder if you're distributed. Um, and maybe this is a trade-off you make, but like, how do you work through that point? There's a balance there. Like as a company, we're 18 months old and for sure we're a very young company. And part of our team or part of our energy devoted to experimenting, testing, iterating, you know, talking to our customers and, and trying to figure out what exactly do they want. But because, you know, we were very fortunate to fundraise when we did and, and, and support of Greylock and, and other great teams, we also can think long-term. We also can think about building you know, the foundations technically and uh, of people, or what are the capabilities we want to build in-house? And, uh, and that gives us an amazing uh, opportunity because we have this relentless goal. So I guess wrapping up here, Marcos, I mean, as you mentioned, it is a young company, but the growth has definitely been incredibly fast. And, uh, and I think, you know, it feels like 
you are reinventing the team every, you know, every six months or so, which is true of many hypergrowth, you know, like startups. And so what plugs would you give right now uh, as you're looking to build the team, any specific roles you're recruiting for, um, anything that people out there interested in Inventa should know? We think we have the opportunity to build once in life opportunity business. Right now, there's millions of small and time entrepreneurs who struggle to discover products, who struggle to buy them. And we think we're positioned to help them and fix that, those issues. So if you work on product, you work in data, you know, you work in technology, and you feel that like you want to have an impact on millions of, million of entrepreneurs and across Latin America, I think you should reach out because we're definitely poised to, to try to solve a large problem nobody ever has and to have a big impact along the way. Well, Marcos, thanks for the time today. It's definitely been fun chatting and, and a reminder, you know, it's really an honor to work with you. And I think, you know, there's definitely a lot more uh, to unpack here on kind of the dynamics of LIDAM in, in future conversations. But, you know, this has been a great conversation and congrats on all the success at Inventa this far. And, you know, I'm sure everyone listening has gratitude too. So thanks for taking the time, Marcos. Thank you, Mike. It's been a pleasure. That concludes this episode of Gray Matter. If you enjoyed this interview and would like to hear more like it, please subscribe to Gray Matter at SoundCloud, Spotify, or wherever you get your podcasts. For more content, you can also check out our website, graylock.com slash blog. And you can follow us on our YouTube channel or on Twitter at GraylockVC. I'm Heather Mack, and thanks for listening.